Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sosodia. Hey, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to see you. Good to see you again. And before we begin, I just want to do a quick shout out to your new book, Awaken. If you want to know the story of a journey of a conscious capitalist through life and awakening as a human being, um, this is a great book. I really loved it. And Raj, will do a separate uh, podcast on that. But I just want to put a little plug in for your book. Thank you. Today, we have a return guest. So you know, I think, Mary, I think you're one of the few people we've had come back. Everybody else is runaway screaming, <laughs> but we've had you come back. So that's wonderful. And uh, let me introduce Mary. Mary is, uh, when I think of Mary, I think that um, if if what Mary doesn't know about employees, stockholder ownership programs or shareholder ownership programs, ESOPs is not worth knowing because she is the queen of this area. She's been around it for 30 years and is a nationally and I would say internationally recognized ESOP expert with more than 30 years of experience structuring and closing over 300 of the ownership transactions of middle market companies. And she's the CEO and founder of Verit Advisors. Before that, she had a long career with LaSalle Bank that went through a couple of iterations with ABN Ambro and then with Bank of America, where she led their ESOP practice before setting up Verit. I could go through a whole paragraph describing all of the things that she's done in boards around ESOP and supporting ESOPs, but let's just say she's had her hand in a lot of pies, and uh, she's probably one of the best connected people in America on this topic. Mary, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, and of course, look forward to the discussion, and thank you for all you're doing to promote uh, employee ownership. Well, thank you. And Along with Mary, we have one of her trusted advisors from Vera Advisors, Jake Krevins. Jake is the um, person who, I like this word, focuses on the execution <laughs> of these damn transactions. He makes it happen. <laughs> and um, among the specialties he has is the valuation of business enterprises. Really important when you get into the whole ESOP world and trustees and trusteeships and things. And he is also an expert on the structuring of ESOP transactions. Prior to that, he was financial analyst with IBM and responsible for a wide range of duties in that role. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, the reason why we've invited you back is because, of course, you continue to push the cutting edge of ESOP practice and thinking, and in particular, you've published a a, a groundbreaking the um, bit of data on ESOPs in the United States called the uh, Verit Monitor on ESOPs, I believe. And we've had the privilege of getting to see a little bit of that. And we're here today to talk to, uh, to you about that. And as we get into that, maybe 
Mary or Jake, give us a little bit of background about what were you thinking when you put this out and why now? Yeah, absolutely. So this process really started with us as a, a leadership team at Verit back in early 2022 and thinking through all of our anecdotal experience. You mentioned Mary's uh, 300 transactions and situations she's worked on over her career, but wanting to get a more you know, quantitative measure of what is motivating business owners, operators, CEOs, CFOs to go down the path of employee ownership. And specifically with our, with our project, look at what motivates them to look at an ESOP and ultimately go forward with an ESOP or what challenges and ro roadblocks arise that push them to a different potential ownership transition alternative. So in 2022, we worked with a firm here in Chicago, Green Target, Glo Green Target Global, uh, to do a blind independent survey of more than 200 founders, co-founders, CEOs, and CFOs of middle market companies and get a sense of really, you know, why they were considering an ESOP or why they had implemented an ESOP. What were the key factors that pushed them towards one decision or another? And then for the companies that had ultimately decided to become an ESOP, what were the challenges they had experienced and what were the benefits that they have experienced over their life cycle and cut that into a few different slices to see, uh, is that different for someone who completed the transition a year ago to someone who completed the transition 20 years ago? I wanted to add to that, Jake, thank you. The umbrella question we were thinking about is, why are we sitting here in 2023 and there are not more ESOPs than there were in the mid 70s or 80s? And mm. we've, but the ESOP community has been delivering the ESOP message in a specific and consistent way. And are we doing it wrong? What's the trigger word that people just uh, go blind or close their ears? Is there a different way to communicate it? And so it was really important to us because to have independence mm. and expertise in evaluating that. And, and Green Target just did a fantastic job. Wow, I love that. I was just going to say that independence was so important to us. We didn't want our relationships with business owners to color the answers they were giving us. We wanted an unfiltered response from the participants. Well, I, I love that big question. and. Well, with a drum roll at, at a high level, what's the problem here, Mary? What's the problem here, Jake? <laughs> Why aren't there more ESOP companies? <laughs> Jake, I think this leads into how do people find out about it? And I thought there were some really interesting outputs from that that weren't, weren't expected from my perspective. That's right. So as, w as Mary said, we looked at so ESOP companies companies considering an ESOP currently and companies that looked at an ESOP and ultimately decide not to go that route. Where were they getting their information? Who were they talking to? And where were the gaps? And not surprisingly, given the age of technology that we're in, every single group categorized online search as the number one factor. That's where they were getting their information. There's a lot of information online and a lot of great resources out there to help people start that journey down the path of employee ownership. Where we really started to see a 
a big gap between the companies that made the decision to pursue employee ownership versus ultimately decided not to was how much they relied on and talked to both peers and other advisors, whether that's people like Verit, whether that's commercial bankers, attorneys, other pools of advisors to get insights on how specifically this structure could work for them, work for their company, and work for their employees. And so at the beginning, that surprised us that there was not that those people weren't then going to who was my trusted group of advisors to get insights. But it really speaks to the fact that employee ownership in, in general and even ESOPs, it's a, it's a broad umbrella with a lot of optionality underneath it. So it's easy to get bogged down on a lot of the specific pieces if you don't have someone to guide you through you know, when is this important and when should you pay attention to it as you go through that process? The surprising part for me, Jake, was the most impactful of resources that biz- business owners found was talking to other employee-owned companies, that the human story is what actually puts it all together. Mm. So when I think about the efforts, the primary efforts of the ESOP community, if you will, the NCEO does a lot of work in publishing information around ESOPs and research around ESOPs. Uh, firms, across, ESOP service firms, whether they're law firms, valuation firms, advisory firms like Verit, et cetera, have a lot of information out there on the web about what is an ESOP. And it's a lot of technical resources. The professional community leans towards expertise in delivering the concept of an ESOP. And it makes so much sense because the reason you're going to, the foundational reason you're going to pursue an ESOP is that there's other human objectives like conscious capitalism, staying private, uh, rewarding your employees, uh, legacy, et cetera. So that just really resonates most impactfully for business owners. Yeah, and I think related to that, you know, have we done enough uh, to sort of break that zero-sum mentality that still prevails, right? Mm-hmm. That if I'm going to do, give something to employees, that's going to take away from the owners or the shareholders and others. Whereas I think the evidence is pretty good that this actually results, there's a strong business case. So the business becomes stronger because it's ultimately it is about employee passion, employee engagement, employee commitment, mm-hmm. employee loyalty that all of those factors more than make up, I think, in most cases, right? That the business is strengthened as a result of that. So it's not a zero-sum game. And that mentality, I suspect, is still out there. Absolutely. We just can't get enough companies to pause and learn. Yeah, well, I thought it was also interesting because I think your data indicated that the longer a company was in an ESOP or an employee-owner transaction, the more satisfied it was, but the but the satisfaction shifted. You know, at the beginning it was a little bit, oh, these are great tax benefits. At the end it was, oh my God, we have a great company. <laughs> I wonder, you know, what your reflections are on that, and and did I read that right? <laughs> that that's absolutely right. The nearly a hundred percent of the companies that responded to the survey that had an ESOP in place were very satisfied and. 
the mean score out of 10 was 8.6. So very, very satisfied uh, companies that have actually gone down down this path. The To your question about the tax benefits, I think it's you know, when you're in the midst of paying corporate taxes, when you're in the midst of considering, it, does the ESOP make sense for me as an owner? Taxes are up there on the list and it's very tangible to say how much can I save? How much can the corporation save? Over time, you start to realize the employees are motivated to your point, Raj. So the company's performing better from that perspective. They have more retirement security. So they feel more comfortable and more engaged with the company. And there's alignment throughout the organization, not just one shareholder or a group of shareholders at the top that are concerned with profitability or other operating metrics. It's interesting. The green target was really surprised at the net approval rating, which is a term mm-hmm. I'd never heard of before. You're going <laughs> to, um, they've, they said in all their surveys, they've never seen such a high net approval rating of, uh, mm-hmm. for a business service with people satisfied. What was surprising to me in the data, if you asked me without looking at it, you know, the number mm-hmm. one attraction to ESOPs, and its culture, legacy, sharing wealth, as Raj pointed out, uh, high-performing businesses, et cetera. So when it first came back that taxes was most important, it invited me to take a step back. And while that might get you into the conversation, I would say most savvy business owners, the taxes are sort of an extra. And in the evolution of or progression of moving towards an ESOP, the the culture, vision, mission, values of the organization and being able to sustain that become the most important. Is that fair, Jake, in the data, in the evolution? Absolutely. And it, it happens pretty quickly in the data after a company had implemented an ESOP. While, as you said, Mary, the taxes are getting people into the conversation. For companies that had implement, you know, put an ESOP in place zero to five over those last zero to five years, sixty-five percent stated that our company's legacy is preserved, and strongly agreed that that's one of the most important factors. Um, all were in the agree category, but that percentage shot up drastically from the pre pre putting it in place to post putting it in place. So, with all that good news, I guess the I want to sit back now and sort of play devil's advocate here a little bit. Okay, so we have this wonderful news, great satisfaction scores. Um, What's the call to action here? Like, like if you've got this great data that makes the case for it, what are the couple of big things that need to happen so that this is not so much a niche product, but becomes more mainstreamed? Because I think that when Raj and I talk about this, it's like, you know, it should be a no-brainer uh, for most of the conscious capitalist-oriented companies in some form, whether it's 10 or 15% or whether it's 100%. Across that spectrum, there ought to be a lot of alignment between what we're promoting in conscious capitalism and, and the employee ownership. So I'm I'm really curious with this great new news, what's your call to action, the one or two things that are now going to put ESOP on the front page of the Wall Street Journal on a regular basis for good reasons. 
It's a, it's a good question. The, I think there's, it's a great question and one that started this project for us and something we've been thinking about for long before then. The, you know, one of the first things I would say is there's still a lack of understanding about what an ESOP is and where it can work. If you go to most business schools in America, if you go through different investment and personal wealth, uh, programs, the an ESOP gets at, at most a paragraph or two within a curriculum. So you have a group of MBAs and graduates that aren't aren't aware of what the benefits of an ESOP are and how and how they work. And what they're hearing about it from is news articles or online research, which say historically has been geared towards you know, mostly smaller companies. And so there I think there's a perception that Oh, that works if you're a 25-person manufacturing firm only, not if you're a, a larger firm with scale. And the truth is, it works for all of those pieces, everything in between. I think our biggest challenge is ignorance, and that people aren't aware of the alternative. And I think the, what continues to contribute to that is that their trusted advisors. And again, the, the survey was helpful here because companies are going to their trusted advisors to get mm. information. And if I'm the attorney or the wealth advisor or the tax advisor for a private business owner, and I don't understand what that alternative is, I'm not going to promote it for my client. So there's a lack of understanding, not just amongst the business owners, but the support network advisory network, trusted advisors to the business owner. We've spent time with bankers and accountants and lawyers and wealth advisors trying to increase their understanding. But human nature is you're suspicious of something you don't understand. The banking community has, the commercial banking community has made enormous strides in the last 10 years, of which I'm very, very proud. As we started at LaSalle Bank back in, back in the 90s, but many of the major middle market commercial banks have an individual who is their subject matter expert. So as the lenders are there and talking to their customers and prospects, if the ESOP comes up, they have a resource to be able to shed more light around the particular strategy. But we've got a long way to go there. Yeah, Mary, I'd say the we hear from a lot of our clients, oh, why didn't I hear about this before? Exactly. We, you know, we looked at a, an, a standard M&A process and I heard about this on the back end and it checked all of the boxes I wanted compared to that alternative. Yeah, uh, I think it raises an interesting question you raised about mindset. And this is something Raj and I are always sort of uh, getting involved with is there is this mindset, whether it's the zero sum mindset or it's the, you know, you can't create wealth for everybody mindset or, you know, um, to be a great business, you've got to go back to the Jack Welch school of, uh, of management and, um, you know, and, and, you know, we can come all kinds of data. And that's why I love that, you know, we've got more data that says, look how satisfied these people are. And yet the 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 branding of it or the 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 PR around it is not influencing mindset shifts. 
And, you know, Raj, you jump in on this too, because I, I'm just really curious, you know, mm -hmm. um, what what's going on in this space? Well, why aren't we getting mindsets to be more open about how to do business? And then this thing being a natural part of the discussion, we ought to be sharing wealth with our workers because they're the ones creating it. <laughs> yeah. And what about B Corps? Do B Corps explicitly incorporate employee ownership as part of the uh, philosophy there? Interesting. There's a huge intersection between employee ownership and B Corps. So many employee-owned companies are B Corporations, uh, but B Corps don't expressly include employee ownership. Mm. You, but one of their values of a B Corp is the leadership culture, mission, and how they treat their employees. And I mm. love the way you asked that, Raj, because I think ESOP people, the ESOP community, Tim and Raj can get stuck that employee ownership equals ESOP, right? Mm. And mm. that's not the case. There's many exciting ways, as Jake was alluding to earlier, <laughs> to accomplish wealth sharing and employee ownership. ESOP is a fabulous tool and there's others. Well, maybe talk a little bit about some of those others, because we had, you know, thanks to your introduction, we had, you know, Peter Stravos, who's now co-head, global co-head of private equity at KKR, on to talk about what they're doing. And, you know, they're doing 10 or 15 percent in, in their deals that are sort of employee ownership. And um, and they're seeing massive, huge returns uh, based on the high performance they're getting from these organizations and they're attributing that to the culture shifts and the energy that that's uh, being created in the organization. So again, I'm back to, okay, so the ESOP's one model, what's going on in the other space in terms of people sort of saying, oh, I don't have to go 100%. I, there are smaller options. Uh, how are yes. people even considering that? Well, one is a, as a community of employee ownership, we have I believe we have to embrace all forms of employee ownership, just as each and every ESOP that we work with is different because the company's different, the culture, the leadership, the mission, the objectives. Other forms of employee ownership are unique. What Pete is doing is a wealth and gain sharing. And KKR is a very smart firm, and they made the mathematical calculation <laughs> that buying 100% of the equity value of the firm and giving away 10%, so diluting themselves to 90 or even 85, is going to produce a better return because of everything you just referenced, Tim, and they've proven it statistically. So that is very exciting. The ESOP community, we've known that all along, right? We've seen, to Raj's point earlier, the stunning returns and opportunities of growth when you create that leadership engagement culture mission vision and values or sustain it the uh, different forms of employee ownership uh don't aren't communicating well with each other and embracing each other very well yet uh there's work and process to try and fix that so kkr is coming to the national center for employee ownership conference next week. Uh, other really interesting forms in the uh, nonprofit ownership works is trying to be an umbrella of information for
for all these different kinds of employee ownership. That doesn't exist right now. Mm. So the traditional KKR model, uh, there's just stock-based retirement plan that many middle market companies have done for a long time. And over time, just give that benefit of stock into a retirement plan a little bit every year. That works really well in a lot of situations. It doesn't have to be a big, fancy, structured ESOP, right? Mm. Uh, and then there's some movement in the in the uh, co-op space on the for small businesses and the EOT, ESOP Trust, for the smaller mm. businesses. Mm. We had a meeting uh, with K- KKR introducing them to a model that a local company, large, large local company in Chicago uses that I've never heard of before. And each mm. year, the employee can take a percentage of their pay and buy stock. And five years later, they get uh, they get a bonus, if you will, of what the then value of the stock is. You flash forward and an individual making $50,000 a year is getting a $200,000 check in year five. So mm-hmm. these factory line workers or assembly line workers are becoming very wealthy in a form of sharing, much, very, very innovative form of sharing. Well, you know, I also, you know, Raj, you made a point about B Corps. And uh, for those of you who are listening that are in the UK in London on May 3rd at the Conduit Club, I'll be part of a panel where we're going to have the head of the Employee Ownership Association here in the UK on with one of the senior leaders of B Corp talking about B Corps, myself talking about conscious capitalism and another group called Blueprint for a Better Business. And I've specifically organized it this way because I think that the discussions are not being coordinated. And, you know, the fact that we can talk about B Corp or talk about conscious capitalism and, and you know, employee ownership doesn't come up unless somebody in the room happens to be, you know, you guys or me or Raj, right. and we raise our hand and say, hey, what about employee ownership? Um, so I think that there's a big need for that kind of community to be more active, along with getting the investors to be educated and understand what you're talking about. Um, the so investors a is a really more. good point. For his, if I can segue there, you know, ESOPs work because your investor is these commercial banks that I've already referenced to understand and are happy to do mm. senior bank credit, and the owner themselves. Mm. being aware and open to receiving the value of their company over time. So mm. if you are want to maximize cash at close, generally an ESOP is not an upper, your best alternative, but the owner is providing the patient capital and the performance mm. of the company and the tax savings provide the vehicle to buying the out, owner out over time. So in situations where that's not a viable option for large companies uh, that have a value at 11, 12, 14 times technology companies, et cetera, the debt is just too heavy to Mm. pay out the owner and create retirement wealth. So the ESOP isn't the only mousetrap, if you will, out there to try and get to this broader public good of narrowing the wage gap and improving culture. So what are you seeing happening? Because again, you know, I look at the 
we've we've got a lot of positive feedback on the KKR uh, podcast that we did, and um, you know, it's raising a lot of questions around if KKR <laughs> can be thinking this way. Um, why isn't there more you know patient capital that is looking and sort of saying, hey? I could buy and hold this business for five or 10 years, or I could be an evergreen fund. And, I, and I'm looking at getting good returns on my investment over a very long period of time. This sounds like magic. This is like, um, you know, one of the best deals out there. <laughs> and, 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 and what's happening with that kind of pool of investors? Is that pool getting bigger, smarter, more aware, or, or, or what's happening in that space? Interesting. I did was on a panel presentation for the leadership group of ASCA, Employee Owned S Corps of America. And this would be a group of some of the largest, best performing, most committed employee-owned companies across the country. And they wanted to better understand private equity. Is it our friend? Mm-hmm. Is it our foe? Et cetera. Back to your questions. So I'm going to weave in some of my comments there. The capital markets have evolved substantially over the last 15 years as private equity has grown as an asset class. Mm. And so I'm going to take a little historical road here, leaving just cliff notes, if you will, highlights along the historical road of capital options. So we've evolved from having public markets public companies and senior bank essentially being the options for capital to this private equity class, to family offices, to life insurance companies that are looking to make long-term investments to offset their long-term liabilities, et cetera. Private equity started as financial engineering and they would get their money back by deleveraging. It evolved into operations. So they would delever and bring in experts to help have more efficient operations. So there was two levers, if you will, to accelerate value. And then it evolved into strategy as well. Like maybe this is a platform company, I'll buy another and use the financial leveraging and the operating leverage. And then they're like, well, I have to differentiate myself from all these the masses of private equity firms. So we started seeing industry specialization, transaction type specializations, and more recently ESG, and ESOPs are falling under the umbrella of ESG. So private equity firms and you know what would have been only maybe, I don't know, less than 10, 10 years ago that could spell ESOP, now there's quite a number in different, different flavors, size of transaction, industry of transaction, what they're looking for, that have experience investing or co-investing in ESOPs. Another important trend that was less available 10 years ago was private equity being interested in being a minority investor in the company. So the original thesis or prevailing as an overgeneralization thesis was control. Mm. Now they're realizing to your point, Tim, is uh, I I'm happy to be part of this great leadership, this great opportunity, et cetera, and have a minority stake in the company. This is provided an intersection with ESOPs where private equity can provide growth capital for a transformational acquisition, 
Um, in some cases, they can help bridge a, sort of a, a kind of capital bulge, a capital need that a company has for a short period of time. And the objective is eventually to buy out the private equity firm, you know, to use that opportunity. Family offices, it provides patient capital. And some private equity firms like Warren Buffett being the big one are a buy and hold strategy. There's small Buffetts, baby Buffetts, if you will, uh, firms that have have developed for that same purpose. I love a comment that a professional named Stan Amy made. I don't know if you ever connected with him, Tim. Uh, mm-hmm. His vision was liquidity with legacy. And that's just a great line. Like, how can I get liquidity? How does a business owner transition liquidity and retain legacy? And ESOP's a great alternative. Long-term patient capital is a great alternative. So I kind of went roundabout. I felt like it was a Candyland thing. <laughs> no, that help no, no, at all? no, the, the, no. That was very, that was very helpful. And um, yeah, no, that, that that's good to get that overview of the landscape. And um, you know, one of the things that that comes up over here, and I don't know if it's as pertinent in the U.S. is one of the dark sides or downsides of employee ownership and taking on the debt that's often associated mm-hmm. with doing that is that that money is therefore not available for growth capital for the next four, three, four, five years it takes to pay down the debt because the company is not reinvesting in the business. They're investing in paying off the debt of the employee ownership. Um, and that's seen certainly over here as being one of the barriers to being, a, if you're a growth company, middle market growth company, and is, okay, we do an ESOP and you know, we, we don't have access to capital for four years, five years. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that because in our traditional ESOP example, and many of ours, the owner is willing to be patient in the receipt. So when mm. we're doing our modeling, we're putting in the the continued CapEx mm-hmm. investments and then looking at the free cash flow to pay back the owner. But they're okay getting paid out over 10 years. What about the growth business that the math doesn't work? And it mm. it doesn't. There's only 100% of a pie to go around, as, as creative as we can get. This is, I believe, where we have to broaden our thinking of employee ownership being ESOP, right? Mm. And there's other forms and ways to drive that employee ownership independent of this 100% ESOP-owned S-corporation, which is fantastic. Uh, But a minority transaction, a gain-sharing like KKR is doing, just your own stock-based retirement plan, you know, the creativity and opportunity is limitless. I believe we sometimes get stuck because when we limit employee ownership to just the ESOP bucket. Mm. Debt, what would you add, Jake? I, I think that's exactly right. It falls under, you just said it, there are a lot of options here. And the one of the benefits of em, employee ownership is that it can be specifically designed to achieve you know, what fits best for a specific company. You know, what works best for company A is not going to work best for company B, and it doesn't have to. And Mary, you mentioned... Uh that uh, employee ownership is considered part of ESG by some. And as you know, there's a bit of a backlash in our country around ESG, and there's a lot of uh, 
you know, uh, critique in certain states, and they're saying you can't use those criteria, and it has to be only. Are you are you seeing that as an impact? Also, that uh, is uh, ESOP getting painted with that brush, which is unfair to begin with. You know that whole critique, but is that is that an issue? Is that <laughs> I have five kids, and it it sometimes never ceases to amaze me at at sort of what one's perspective might be versus another's of, the, mm -hmm. of sort of the same dinner meal. Um, I think employee ownership, ESOPs rushed to get under ESG as a differentiation tactic for to source new client opportunities. Um, maybe that wasn't as crowded as the traditional private equity firms. We are not mm -hmm. at all being tainted by what's happening in ESG more broadly because it never really got off the ground beyond a marketing perspective. What did not get off the ground? ESOP, an ESOP application. So there's people, there's funds that are trying to invest in ESOPs as part of a, an ESG fund that are trying to include um, ESOPs, but okay. it has not broadly uh, mm. disseminated into more ESOPs or solving problems. Mm. Uh, there's a couple one-off, Tower Brooks done some, uh, that company up in Canada that worked on Taylor Guitar, I think is ESG. Mm. But uh, it, line it's, three. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's very, very niche. So we're not getting painted with that, Raj. Mm -hmm. I think it helps as well, Raj, that there's a, and you've seen this in the returns and KKR strategies and the results uh, from the NCO and other organizations that look at what is the operating performance after implementing employee ownership that you're seeing reduced turnover, you're seeing increased engagement. So you're seeing the direct capitalist monetary results of implementing this, what I, which I think helps people get over the and not associate the taint that is uh, happening right now with broader ESG. You know, it, it almost feels to me like we talk in conscious capitalism that, you know, we want this mindset to become the default, right? Whereas uh, today the default is shareholder centric, uh, short term, etc., and then ultimately when this becomes a default mindset, everything else kind of falls into place. It's almost like opt in versus opt out, you know. And the same thing I think applies for employee ownership. How do we make that kind of the default mindset? That should be that that's the logical way to go, right? And you should have a reason not to do it rather than the other way around. I know that's a tall order and it starts with business education and, you know, all the theories that we have there uh, that, that we continue to perpetuate. But, uh, but I think we have, that's, that's ultimately the, the switch. I think that we all want to see the default setting becomes, of course, why would you not do this? Right. I'm struck by the business education part of it. You know, it was interesting in, in talking with Peter, you know, Peter Stravos at KKR, you know, he said that this his interest in employee ownership went all the way back to his days at Harvard Business School. And he said that he was at business school looking around, trying to understand, you know, what's this thing, employee ownership, you know, and, you know, it didn't sound, you know, that, that was, you know, probably the 90s and there probably wasn't a lot. Um, but Raj, you know, you're you're in this business. Yeah, and, uh, I'm really yeah. curious as to, you know, like, Mary, Jake, you know, how do we work with the business schools? And and Raj, what's your perspective on that in terms of, you know, if you're going to set the default differently, it's got to start with these people in the MBA programs. Yeah, I agree. And I'm looking at Ownership Works and they've got a very impressive roster of uh, of partner companies, right? Uh, major banks, uh, they've got Ernst & Young and 
Pricewaterhouse and McKinsey and others. Uh, they've got foundations. You know, they've got a very, very impressive, but they don't have business schools. They don't, they haven't identified that as a stakeholder in this uh, in this movement. And I think that should be something we suggest to Pete. We, uh, Pete did a webinar with me for uh, University of Chicago Booth School of Business out of the mm. Rastandi uh, Center for Social Justice. And then just earlier this week, he was in town for the Baumhart Center at Loyola University. Same thing, the, mm. the universities are founding centers for social justice. And this mm. absolutely comes in. And I'm hearing more conversation. Actually, this would be great for conscious capitalism. Um, more conversation from these centers at the business schools on yeah. business for good. Yeah, no, I I, th I think it is part of the, the mindset shift here. And, and I want to play off something Raj brought up. Again, I want to go back to ownership works because it sounds great. And it's got an impressive list of people. And I'm not asking you to critique them, but um, I, I haven't heard, you know, I haven't heard 10 other private equity firms coming out and announcing that they've done 20 or 30 of these deals or that they're committing funds of significant size to this. And maybe it's because I haven't been listening, but I'm I'm curious as to it's brilliant. It's got all the right names. And is it getting any momentum in the marketplace? Well, I'm a big fan, having spent my whole career in ESOPs and employee ownership, in the ESOP element of employee ownership. And as Jake said, which started our conversation, why aren't there more? So we, we did this survey to get a little bit more insight. We haven't been able to move the needle. And what ownership works has the opportunity to do in a way no one's figured out how to do yet is raise the curve. There's thousands and thousands more employees at a large public company than there is in your average ESOP company. And, and they are tracking the data. And as the data, which we would believe, continues to come back favorably, I say uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. Employee ownership, which is, a, I think, a mindset that you think that we'd all like to have be more prevalent, that will be more in the Wall Street Journal. And therefore, you know, we'll see more ESOPs, we'll see more other creative plans, gain sharing, wealth sharing. It was interesting when Chobani made it into the Wall Street Journal because he gave 10% to his employees when he sold, did something with the company. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone was shocked, right? And now Pete's made it, uh, Ownership Works and KKR has made it a little bit more mainstream and gotten out there. And that, I think we're going to see a lot more to come here because it works. Oh, I'm just uh, very uh, grateful for the work you all are doing. And I think this is a very important element in aligning the stakeholders together, the most important stakeholder of employees. And, and I think that would go a long way towards solving many of the challenges that we are facing in the world. So, Amen. Work. Yes. Thank you for all the there... work that you do. I, uh, I just so appreciate uh, that you all are dedicated to continuing to bring forward these conversations. Well, Mary, Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review on whatever channel you're um, listening to it on and hit the subscribe button if you want to hear more. And like to say a special shout out to Tech Sounds for producing today's show. And Raj, any thanks you want to give? Yes, on the Conscious Enterprise Center at Technological de Monterey, which is working uh, hard to spread these ideas. 
around the world. Thank you, everyone, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>